Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. My guest for this episode is Stephen Barstow, author of Around the World in 80 Plants. Today we talk about his incredibly diverse garden in Norway, where he grows over 2,000 edible plants in a rather small space. We begin with his background and how he came to have an interest in edibles from his beginning as a foraging vegetarian through to his collecting and eating a variety of plants from wherever he traveled. He shares with us his love of edible ornamentals, or what Stephen calls edimentals, and he also recommends some of these edimentals to start with when first beginning to introduce more of these species to your garden. One of my favorites, not mentioned in this interview, are nasturtiums. Let's hear from Stephen, and then I'll join you afterwards with some thoughts and updates. Could you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we'll discuss your book, Around the World in 80 Plants. I actually moved from the UK to Norway in 1981, which is a hell of a long time ago, 34 years. And I moved to Norway basically to get a job. I am trained as an oceanographer and work with ocean waves. And at that time, Maggie Thatcher was closing all the research institutes in the UK. And uh, just to get a job, I had to move abroad. I could have got a job, but it was within researching dumping of nuclear waste in the deep ocean and it wasn't really my kind of thing as at that time I was going out on marches against nuclear power stations it didn't really suit me but so I moved to Norway in 81 and I was a vegetarian and at that time there actually were very few vegetables available in supermarkets in Norway. The local supermarket had four or five different vegetables. It was almost as though this was a country where vegetables were illegal. We joke about it, but it was almost like that. And historically, Norwegians haven't had a very strong tradition of, of using greens at all. So actually, to survive as a vegetarian, I had to start, start growing food. And we rented a flat with actually a very large piece of land that we were able to use. We only stayed there for a couple of years when I moved to where I'm living today. And very early on, I came in contact with a group called the Norwegian Useful Plant Society. And this is a pretty unique society globally, actually. I haven't come across another country that has a society which is devoted to foraging. And this is a very old society here in Norway. It goes back over 100 years. And it's devoted to foraging fungi, mushrooms in the, in the autumn and, and berries, of course. And, but also wild edible greens in the springtime. So there was this kind of strange contrast. There were no vegetables in the supermarket, but there was this group of well, youngsters at the time going out on spring forages and I, I soon learned there was something like 60 different edible vegetables, edible plants in the area around my house and got really interested in that. And yeah, and I traveled quite a lot with my work as an oceanographer. We had a kind of a dreamlike project in the South Pacific, actually. In I was working with ocean wave energy and we were trying to work out how much energy there was in the oceans around the South Pacific Islands because this is an area where they use diesel for fuel and renewables was something that would help out in that situation, which entailed to go down there to do training for some of the islanders in the area. And on these trips around the world, I started stopping off in North America and New Zealand and various places like this and buying up books about the local foraging because... I saw that there were some really good wild plants that I would never have heard of locally 
if I hadn't got into local foraging. And it occurred to me that there were other parts of the world there would be some other in there, very interesting wild edibles. So I started building up a kind of a library of edible plants. Then I remember one particular time I was in Seattle in the States and I saw I found this book in the in, in a bookstore there called The Edible Plants of the World, Stuart Avant's Edible Plants of the World. It was a book that was put together in about 1920, and it has something like 3,000 wild species which are edible. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. No, no pictures, just a load of information about each of the plants. And yeah, I remember going through this and saying, that'd be nice to try. And then I noticed some of the plants that were mentioned in there were actually ornamentals in our gardens plants like hostas and daylilies and, and, and such like. So I started looking around in gardens and botanical gardens and seeing in a slightly new light these ornamental plants, which a few years ago I dubbed edimentals, edible ornamentals, which is also the name of my website, edimentals.com, that these, these plants were particularly useful because they double up as edibles and ornamentals. So you can forget having an ornamental garden you can just just grow nice plants which are also good to eat and many of these you can you can basically cut right down to the you can pick the young shoots in the springtime and then still they will flower later in the season so you can have have both that was really the early years were you foraging and eating your way around the world as you would travel learning about these different edible plants to a certain extent, obviously I didn't have that much time when I was when I was traveling, but I certainly went out on, on, on field trips and started to learn the plants. I remember in, there was one particular plant in New Zealand that I was very inquisitive to, to learn more about. It's actually a, a weed globally. It's sow thistle, Soncus. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a weed you basically find in a disturbed ground globally. It's actually an annual but the Maori of New Zealand, they were, so they had this perennial south thistle, and when the Europeans came, there was this annual south thistle, which I think is familiar to most people, which started appearing in their vegetable gardens. And they started using that one instead of the perennial variant, and it would grow on the edges of their beds. And I read in this foraging book from New Zealand that the Maoris even they cultivated it, it said, and and that they this South Thistle was also sold on markets in Maori markets in Auckland and various other cities in New Zealand. So when I was back in New Zealand, I decided to visit one of these Maori markets, and, and right enough, about a third of the stalls on this market they were selling this what we would think of as a weed. And it turns out that the Maori use a lot of this. The South Thistle is a vegetable, and it's very popular. And it turns out that the Maori have a very low incidence of the stomach cancers and other similar cancers. And one of the theories is actually that one of the reasons for this is, is the large consumption of this, this weed, whereas the European people, they don't really use this, this plant to any degree. Yeah, I remember... When I was in New Zealand, you know, I, of course I had to. Had, I went to this market and I bought some, and I had a kind of accommodation with cooking facilities, and, and I cooked it up. And wow, this is really quite good. So today, actually, one of the most, one of the vegetables I use most in my garden is actually this common south thistle, which uh, is a weed on my you know, vegetable and perennial beds in the garden.
very easily. It just you don't do anything. It just keeps on coming. But also, uh, I grow various uh, perennial south thistles because uh, perennials is most wild edibles are actually perennial, and many of the our common conventional food crops are, were originally perennial plants like all the cabbage family derived from perennial wild plants. I talk quite a lot about that in the book. There's a whole section about perennial kales and cabbages. 100, 150 years ago, there were perennial kales and cabbages were quite commonly cultivated, and, but it really didn't fit into the our desire to, to dig the ground, uh, to, to dig and plow every springtime. And, but luckily, these perennial kales survived in home gardens across Europe and North America and in some other parts of the world. Luckily, thanks to the fact that home gardeners saw the use of these plants, we have something like, uh, I don't know, eight or nine different old perennial kales which survive today. And thanks to increased interest now in permaculture and perennial vegetables and genetic resources, then I think most of these old perennial kales are now safe. Unlike conventional cabbages and kales, etc., these perennial kales are propagated by cuttings, so they're very easy to just pass over to your neighbor. You don't need any big seed companies as a source of seed. When making the selections that you did for your book, these 80 plants, you take us on a tour of every continent. Were there particular criteria you had in selecting the plants that you wanted to share? First of all, the all plants that I've, I've grown myself in my garden quite near the Arctic Circle in Norway, living at about 64 degrees north. So these were all plants that I was familiar with and had grown for a number of years that a lot of the plants have an interesting botanic story behind them. Yield was one thing. Many of the plants I talk about are plants which grow very well in, uh, in shady conditions, places where you wouldn't consider to have conventional vegetables. So they fit very well into this new wave of forest garden gardening, which is coming at us. I gardened here in, in Norway more or less on my own for 25 years. I didn't know any other gardeners. And this is before there was internet really took off. And it's really only the last five years that I've had a lot of contact with other gardeners through the internet, through Facebook, and through my website, etc. And that's been really inspiring because there's suddenly this uh, this wave over the last four or five years here in Norway that, and I think more or less globally, that uh, youngsters are really getting interested in wanting to learn about growing their own and being self-sufficient again and and stuff. And it's uh, and permaculture is very important in that respect. And so about five years ago, started, youngsters started uh, turning up in my garden. I heard rumors of this large collection of edible plants that I have and started coming into my garden and saying, you've got a forest garden. Have I? I said, of course I had a forest garden when I started thinking about it because I have a, my, my garden is quite a complicated. There are lots of niches in the garden, ecological niches. There are shady places, there are open places, there are windy places. And I always, when I planted something, I planted according to where those plants were growing nature. So I observed nature and moved those and planted according to that. So, yeah, plants that needed shady conditions, they were planted together with trees and bushes. Yeah, of course I had a forest garden. I just didn't actually... But I had heard of the concept of forest gardening, but it didn't really totally sink in, I must admit. I was doing my thing for many years. I had read the book uh, by Robert Hart years ago on forest gardening, one of the pioneers. Yeah, 
so that's where we are today, really. You say about five years ago, people were showing up in your garden. Had you had much exposure to the permaculture community before that? Not really, no. I've heard of permaculture and uh, I'd found it, I suppose, a bit confusing as to what exactly it was. I've been part of the organic movement right from the word go. Actually, even before I moved to Norway, I was involved in the UK organic movement what was called the Henry Doubleday Research Association at that time, and learned a lot about seed saving and the importance of preserving old varieties, genetic resources, and that kind of stuff. So as well, and my garden, I opened my garden to the public and had regular open days from about 89 onwards. So well, I always grew things organically, but the interest in, in, in perennials, it just gradually dawned on me that actually the plants which were giving the highest yields in my in, in, in my conditions, they were actually perennials. Okay, these were plants that were mainly that were mainly harvesting in the springtime, like most of the wild edibles. But undoubtedly, it's the perennials that give the highest yields in my garden. And I started getting a permaculture magazine with the publishers who are permanent so publications and I discovered a number of very interesting things which in plants which weren't very well known as edibles around the world and one of them was a plant that, that we call the Caucasian spinach, Hablitzia tamnoides. It's a climbing plant that can grow to about three to four meters in, 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 during the summer months and it grows in woodland in the Caucasus in the wild. And that plant came to the to Scandinavia as an ornamental in around about 1870. And it became quite popular over here. A bit popular. It was also grown to a small in a small scale in the US and in England, but never became really popular. But in, in particularly in Sweden, Finland, Norway, it was discovered that it was actually the young shoots in the springtime were actually quite tasty. It's a plant which is related to plants like fat hen or what's it called, Lady's Thumb, I think it's called over there, isn't it? No, not Lady's Thumb. Different cultures, different names, but it's in the podium family. It's really quite closely related to those. And, yeah, it was discovered quite early on that it was very good to eat, but it kind of gradually, the interest in it as an ornamental, it faded away, but a few people kept kept growing it as an edible. And when I discovered this about... 15 years ago or so, I started growing it and I found that it was getting incredible yields very early in the spring. So my oldest single plant, it has something like 250 shoots in the springtime from the one rootstock. And uh, these shoots are harvested about 10 centimeters long. You can cut them all back and it comes with a new burst of growth. Really high yielding, very tasty. It can be used as a salad plant and it can also be used as a kind of spinach. And I was so excited about this plant, I wanted to spread the word. So I contacted Permaculture Magazine in the UK and asked them if they'd be interested in a, an article, and they were. I wrote the article, and I followed that up with another article about hostas, which is a very common ornamental plant, but little known in the West as, a, as an edible. Very important in the Far East, in particularly in Japan and Korea, as an edible plant. It's cultivated, and it's also collected from the wild, foraged from the wild. Really productive plant. It grows in, almost, in in very shady conditions. Perfect for the forest garden type environment. But really strange that it's never really, despite all the books on oriental vegetables, etc., it doesn't seem to really have been picked up on before. So basically on the back of those two plant profiles, no quite 
I like to go into depth on on the plants and how they and this is how the whole book is structured. It's a an ethnobotanical travel log around the world. So we follow the plants and the stories behind the plants, and I get experience about how those plants are cultivated, how they're used in the kitchen. It's 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 not a it's not a cookbook, but I include a few recipes sprinkled through to inspire others. So it's really a book that's will hopefully inspire others to to look at some of these perennials and try them for themselves. And it's by no means certain that the 80 that I've chosen are the best for other people. It's supposed to inspire people to to look at other perennials around the world. There are certainly hundreds still to be discovered which are out there. I keep on, I'm still discovering interesting uh, perennials in my garden. And how many perennials do you currently have in your garden? Too many, probably. <laughs> Joe, but I'm actually a sick man. I've got a collector mania. My dad, he collected stamps. I had to find something to collect, and it turned out to, to be edible plants. So I have, I really don't know how many they are, but probably have in the region of 2,000 different plants from around the world, which is, which is quite interesting because I can, one day I can go out and forage in Japan. The next day I can forage in North America. I can forage in Norway, but I've got far too much food, particularly in the springtime. So I don't manage to, by no means, eat everything every springtime. There's some things I still haven't got around to eating. And it's, I don't have many of each variety. And I'm trying very hard to concentrate on the ones which are, really are these 80 and a few others. But it's very difficult to throw plants away, I find. <laughs> How much space do you have devoted to your garden to grow these plants in? Oh, let's say it's it's the whole garden is something like 50 meters long by about 30 meters wide, and I cultivate probably about, about two thirds of that. So it's about a thousand square meters. That's really not a lot of space for how much you ha- you're growing. No, it's not. As I say, I don't have I don't have that many of each each variety. I'm lucky that I've got pretty fertile soil. I'm living right next to the coast, so I've only used seaweed as a fertilizer for the last, getting on for 25, 30 years. So I just, so it's all locally sourced, and I rarely have any other input than the seaweed in the garden. I don't handle metric well being an American. I just converted that, and that's only about 10,000 square feet then that you're cultivating, a little under a quarter of an acre. That's pretty incredible. It's quite incredible. The, the I could get more yield out of it if I really concentrated on the plants, which were really giving the highest yield. But I'm 100% self-sufficient, at least in leafy greens, potatoes, that, that, that kind of thing. But I don't grow grains and that kind of thing, only on a very small scale. So I've experimented a bit with perennial grains and things, but not on a big scale. I don't have... I don't have space for that. So the book is basically about leafy greens. I decided to limit it at that. And I don't concentrate on, on root crops, but I mention it where the leafy green may be, can also be used as a root vegetable. In your garden, do you include any animals of any kind? No, I don't. No. So it's, I grow in a vegan because it's I don't use any animal manure. I don't, apart from my own, <laughs> whatever I produce myself, I don't use, I don't import any horse manure or whatever. And you say that you and your wife were vegetarians when you made the move. Are you still vegetarian? 
Almost. I do have some wild fish occasionally, but otherwise I'm vegetarian, yeah. Lacto, yeah. I think it was Steve Solomon, the author of Growing When It Counts. I don't remember if that's the full title of the book. He referred to himself as a vegetable-tarian because he ate primarily the vegetables that grew from his garden. And it sounds like you're very sufficient from your own garden, your own needs in that way. There are all sorts of te- techniques. For in, in the winter, I've got a house with a cold basement where I store a lot of things. I sprout a lot of things in the winter, usually home-saved seed. The cellar itself, I actually move things like kales, perennial kales, Swiss chard, these kind of things, down into the basement and plant them in earth. And even though the temperature is only a few degrees, probably currently about five degrees, new sprouts come, and which so I can actually harvest greens from the from the cellar during the winter. And there are actually some some plants that I can actually harvest outside this Caucasian spinach for the Hablitsia because that actually sends it's incredibly early. It actually sends up young shoots in the autumn, and those young shoots they stand the whole winter unaffected by temperatures down to minus 20. In Finland, anywhere they can stand minus 30 centigrade. Quite an incredible plant. I made a salad with some some shoots just the other day, actually. (laughs) And some onions, particularly the North American nodding onion, Allium cernuum, which I also call Chicago onion in the book because the name Chicago actually means or is believed to to mean onion in Native American language. And that was one of the first perennial onions that I grew. It is grown here as an ornamental, but it's really productive. It's beautiful. It's tasty. grows very quickly. That's one that I would definitely have in, in, in my garden if I started off again. And that's also in the book. I tell the story about the book, about, about the plant in Chicago and North America's most widespread onion. And it's what I call an edimental, an edible ornamental, fantastic plant. Mentioning that this would be one of the plants that you would start off with if you were starting off again, what are some other kind of beginner plants that you would recommend people investigate in this edimental vein? And I've already mentioned one, that's the Hablitsia. It depends what kind of climate you've got, ultimately. Obviously, you've got the people listening in here uh, living all over over the world. So it's not necessary that the ones which grow for me best are going to grow well there. But I know that Hablitsia is grown in the colder part, all the colder parts of North America, and it's grown right down into France and Europe and England. So that's one. Hostas, I would definitely have. I would have a plant. Well, my, my most productive perennial vegetable is a plant which we call udo, which comes from Japan. It was under the Latin name of Aurelia cordata, plant in the ginseng family. And uh, it's herbaceous. In other words, it grow, it dies right back to the ground every, every autumn. It comes with new shoots, but it grows to three to four meters in my almost Arctic climate within the end of June. Yeah. Incredible growth rate. And it's, my largest plant has something like 30 shoots, which I harvest about one meter high. And in Japan, it's, again, both cultivated and also wild foraged. And they have a really one of the most unusual forms of gardening I've ever come across, that Tokyo, 
is built on, and parts of Stoke anyway, built on a particular type of soil, which they can easily dig in. And they've made these big caverns under Tokyo where they move the roots of Udo down and they're sprouted. The shoots from the Udo roots underground in the, in the complete darkness, they harvest them down there and then they sell those, those shoots at a delicacy on markets around. But that plant has so many different uses. The young shoots are used, the, the young flower, what we could think of as broccolis, just before the flowers come out, are used widely in Japan as in tempura, if you know what tempura is. And yeah, it's a plant that both bees and butterflies and nature likes, birds like the little berries that come later on. Fantastic plant. And when I, when people challenge me and say that, well, you, the reason we don't grow perennials is that they don't yield, I just show them a photograph of my largest vegetable with towering over me. So that, that, that is definitely one I would, I would suggest looking at. I know it's cultivated for oriental markets in, in North America. And they started recently in the UK cultivating it and selling on markets in London. So it's obviously fairly well adapted to quite a wide range of climates. Yeah, I could go on and on. There are so many plants, as I say, hosta, hablitzia. Perennial kales, of course, if you've got the climate, perennial kales are not that hardy, but if you've got the climate for them, well, even if you don't have the climate, you can actually take cuttings of perennial kales in the autumn and overwinter them inside, and then you've already got a, a head start in the springtime. With the hostas, for somebody who's listening to this and looking outside and thinking about the hostas that are growing in their own yard, what parts of that plant are edible? The main part which is used are the the young shoots in the springtime. You can imagine that just before the leaves start folding out, I actually call them hostons. I don't know if you these chicory shikons, which are sold on supermarket, but they're sprouted in the wintertime and sold over here. So I call them hostons in parallel with shikons. And so they're basically harvested and they can be used as a kind of a spinach. I've made a, uh, I remember, uh, first actually it was the North American Hosta Society. This is the thing that really got me to, I'm, I'm very careful with, I, I, I don't try things until I'm absolutely sure, particularly when I think I'm the only person in the world that ever tried this vegetable. But I read on the, on, on the net an article about the North American Hosta Society had an annual meeting and one of the members was, was I think from Japan and he made a whole range of hosta dishes for this meeting and they were raving about it and this is really good and that really encouraged me to try it. And one of the dishes they made was something called hosta kapita, which was based on the Greek spinach pie, which is called spanokopita. Okay. And it's basically just take a, a Greek spinach pie recipe and use hosta leaves instead. Then you can have a delicious vegetable pie. But and not only that, I've discovered that the, there are other species of hosta which are also blanched. They're grown in dark greenhouses for markets in Tokyo, which they actually call, literally translated from the Japanese, hosta icicles, because they look, they're white, they're long and white. Also, the flower shoots are very crispy and tasty, and the flowers themselves can be used in salads in the summer. 
such an incredible variety from a plant that until I read your book and talked to you today, I didn't even know was edible. Yeah, most people are surprised. We have people coming around my garden, they see I'm growing holsters, and they say, you don't eat that, do you? And they're kind of in disbelief. But yeah, indeed, and it's not at all bitter, a good taste. Yeah, try it. There, there are no known poisonous substances in any of the hostas. You can basically use any. Have you ever gotten a little bit of a stomach upset from trying some of your new plants as you bring them into your garden and into your diet? No, I can honestly say that I've never, apart from one particular occasion, which was actually a wild forage plant, and that was ostrich fern, fiddleheads. And we had an experience where we we harvested from the wild and I told I, I was actually actually had a course over here where I we went out foraging along a, a river and we came back home I told everybody that, that you're supposed to cook them for 10-15 minutes just to be, be sure because some of the places that these the ferns are growing can be flooded during the winter and there can be some nasty things coming with floodwaters it's difficult to clean the fiddleheads 100%. And I know there have been similar episodes in the U.S. of people getting getting sick from eating fiddleheads which haven't been cooked. So that was the only occasion. I told everybody to, to cook for 10 minutes, but I came back too late and it already, the dinner had already been made and the person who had eaten it hadn't heard this and it had only been cooked briefly. And I thought, well, this has never occurred in Norway before that anybody's been sick. It's probably all right, but that was a mistake. That's still pretty incredible for everything that you've sampled, everything you've brought into your garden and all these things that are a regular part of your diet to have had but just one incident. Yeah, but it's all about diversity. You know, if you often the problem is you eat too much of one thing. You know, I never eat too much of one thing. I'm always using at least, well, often anyway, ten, ten, twenty, thirty different vegetables in the in a dish. And I think this diversity and seasonality of food is very much underestimated in our diets. And it's more fun as well. Well, I look at how colourful the plate is on the cover of your book with the yellows and reds and blues and purples and all these things that on a normal American plate you very rarely see unless it's something that's been colored like that. The cover of the book is a picture from my from my house of a one of these diversity salads that I've become known for because a few years ago I you know, having so many edibles in my garden, we had an open day and I decided to you know, we'd make a salad with as many different species of plant as possible. The first time I did this, we came up, well, it was about 340 different species. And the second time it was 538, which is still the world record. And I think anybody's been mad enough to try. So that gave the name Extreme Salad Man or the Mad Salad Man. Oof. Regularly over, over recent years, made these salads, often with 100 species. I'm not going to make one with 538 again because that, that took about 20 hours to put together and document, etc. But the, every year I usually make have a special occasion where we make a, a really diverse salad so that every mouthful you, you, you eat, you get a new taste. It's, and they're beautiful, as you say, uh, decorated with flowers and other colourful like on, on the cover, you can uh, there's these little blue chunks. That's actually a blue potato, blue Congo potato. So diversity is my second name. And I appreciate the time that we've spent together today walking through your background and the book and this diversity of foods that we can integrate and even grow in such a small space. 
Before we draw the interview to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? What I would say really is, is hopefully, if you do read my book, Around the World in 80 Plants, that it would certainly have succeeded if it has inspired some of you folks to observe nature yourselves and and start exploring the incredible number of wild edibles out there. As I said earlier, there is absolutely certain there are many still to be discovered. There are many of these wild edibles which have been domesticated on a small scale around the world. Absolutely so. There are hundreds of others in the Japan, Korea area. In the Mediterranean countries, they've discovered 3,000 different edible plants just over the last 15 years because researchers started getting money to explore what people were eating off the Mediterranean diet was the fact that people living in, in mountain areas in, in the Mediterranean areas had very low uh, incidence of heart and, and lung disease. And, uh, well, a lot of the perennials which we are, I'm growing and most other people are growing, are actually little improved from the wild species. So I encourage very much people to join groups like uh, there's a Facebook group, Plant Breeding for Permaculture, because I think even as amateurs we can actually achieve a lot if we work together. For example, there's a lot of work going on at the moment within trying to breed better perennial kales by crossing perennial kales with some of the more colorful modern kales, for example, hoping that the perenniality will be maintained. So this whole thing of open source breeding of, of perennials is something I think we can actually do communally thanks to the, thanks to the internet. And we can have fun at the same time. That would be basically what I would hope. <laughs> it's something that I haven't really had enough space or time myself to work too much on. I've got a number of projects on the go, but we're trying to breed new things. Well, it's encouraging to walk through your book and read about all of the different plants and also to connect with the broader communities that are involved in this. As you say, there are a lot of of younger folks coming into this who are very interested and engaged, and I hope that we can together continue to improve on these plants and enjoy such a diversity in our diet and in our world. So thank you for being a part of this movement. Well, thank you, too. That's been really interesting. Yeah. It's been a long journey, but a very interesting and fun journey. And yeah, I'm not finished yet. Will you add another thousand plants or more to your garden? I doubt that, but as I say, I'm trying to try to decrease rather than increase, but certainly there are a lot of new things. I'm still sowing something like 300 different perennials every year. I'm not finished quite. Well, certainly I'll stay in touch and we'll find out more about where your garden grows in the future. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. Anybody in Norway, please, please pop in. Even if they're just there to visit? Yeah, sure. Yeah. As long as I'm home and, and got time. Then, uh... And that was Stephen Barstow, author of Around the World in 80 Plants. You can find out more about his work at edimentals.com. His book is available in North America from Chelsea Green Publishing or in the UK and Europe from Permanent Publications. You'll find links to all of those in the show notes. Until the next time, spend each day creating a better world, the world you want to live in, by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>